Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, tonight I want to talk about wise effort, which um, is a key issue in practice. I'm sure you've had this thought, you know, I'm not sure, but perhaps most of you have had this thought, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? How much is enough? How much is too much? And maybe you've done enough retreats where that's no longer an issue, but um, I would bet that in your early days somewhere, the issue of, of effort uh, was, was front and center. And it's a really important issue to explore. It's wise effort is one of the factors in the Eightfold Path. Effort in terms of energy is in the seven factors of enlightenment, the five spiritual faculties, lots, lots of lists. Um, and often we get into a, a tizzy in our mind uh, and kind of try to give ourselves a, a review of how I'm doing. You ever, how many people is that so where you say, how am I doing right now? Am I doing well? Am I not doing well? Has that ever come up for people? I'm glad I'm not the only one that sometimes has had those thoughts. And if we judge ourselves by how mindful we are or how concentrated we are, it's a setup for dukkha. And we have lots of different um, messages that we get from different teachings and teachers about the right attitude for practice. Uh, sitting with a Burmese master who was always talking about heroic effort, you know, just turn up the jets. You know, if, you're, if your leg feels like it's falling off, just note it, falling off, falling off, falling <laughs> off, you know. Well, one of his one of the, the lines that that stuck stuck in my mind: abandon all concern for the body. Yeah. yeah. Practice like your hair is on fire. That's a that's another famous line. And there's something there's a, a value to that kind of um, fierce um, aditana determination. And dedication, and I, I know. Does this go on and off? Yeah. Um, I know um, how it's it's like to practice like that. In in my early years, I was like a warrior, and there was a real value to it because if I wasn't pushing myself, I mean, I was just so enthusiastic about practice. Uh, when you're not pushing yourself in that way, it can be very fulfilling. Um, just feeling 
good that you're, you're giving 110%. But I know what it's like for that to not be so skillful and to wind yourself up in knots and have a report card going. And I have seen many, many yogis go through that, um, that sorry, sorrowful uh, passage until at times they'll, after a while, they'll hopefully for, remember, oh, this is not about a report card. This is about showing up. So that's on the one hand, there's that, um, that kind of an attitude. And on the other, there's a whole other mm, way of practicing Meninjaji, one of my uh, early teachers and a, a benefactor and Joseph's first main teacher, um, used to say, simple and easy, empty phenomena rolling on, just settle back and rest in the moment. And then, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have, I forgot to bring uh, Utejaniya's uh, 23 points of right attitude. You know, if, if you're practicing and you're getting tired, you're, you're out of balance, and this is not wise attitude. Relaxation, he's pointing out, is the key. And uh, here's one from Gendon Rinpoche, the great Tibetan master. Some of you have heard this before, I'll just read some of it. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, Space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Really high teaching. This is, you know, the kind of pinnacle of Dzogchen teachings. Um, the preliminaries to those teachings are uh, 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 visualizations and 100,000 uh, mantra recitations. Um, and after you do all of that, they say, just relax. <laughs> just take it easy. So they're both, they're both true. And so it's not to think it's any one way. And the key is to have a balance of effort. And if you have some kind of an idea of what should be happening, as I said, you're setting yourself up for dukkha, and you can have all kinds of ideas about good practice that can change over time. You know, on one of my early retreats, uh, I was sitting there, and I was, I was just with the breath, just, you know, in, out, in, and it was, it was really delicious, except... After some, some days, everybody around me seemed like they were going through this deep emotional catharsis. And 
tissue boxes were kind of disappearing and you know you can hear the the depth of the what I thought was an inner transformation as they got in touch with all of the stuff that maybe I hadn't and I went running to Joseph and saying hey I don't know if I'm missing something here you know and uh I'm just here with my breath. Everybody seems to be getting so much out of this. I, uh, and he said very wisely, don't go looking for trouble. It'll, it'll find you soon enough. <laughs> it was great advice. And, you know, of course he was right. And you can be on the other side of that, going through your boxes of tissues and saying, God, if I could only stay with, uh, with the breath... There's, it's almost impossible to see what your process is from the inside. And so it's all a matter of balance. And to realize that it's really not so much in your control how mindful you are or how concentrated you are. This is a, a great revelation in my own practice when it uh, it dawned on me i remember just the retreat uh and when it happened when i realized oh i have no control over how mindful or concentrated i am the one thing i have control over is um the willingness to be here as much as i can and when i've gone to bring myself back Oh, that's my end of the deal. What a relief. So this balance of effort is really the key. And how do we find that balance of effort? Given that our energy and our level of clarity and our level of calm or um, uh, agitation are continually changing like everything else subject to the, the law of impermanence. Um, there's no one right amount that you say, oh, this is how much I should do. But it's a continual adjusting to see how can I come into balance. And the key question I find myself um, asking and that I recommend to you is getting in touch and saying, what do I need right now? What do I need to come into balance? What do I need to show up in this moment with a balanced attitude that's not over-efforting and not laying back, but is really here in a way that um, my heart is into it, and uh, my head is not getting all wound up about things. Mm. I remember on one retreat, uh, it was a uh, retreat in the fall in, in Massachusetts. I was sitting for three months, and I was... This is in the earlier days, and I was in that kind of warrior-like mode. And I, I used to love to go really slow. Um, 
I can't do that now, but I still, I remember, and I love to go slow when I can. These days I kind of balance, <laughs> hold on to something. But in those days, just really, really just crawling. And um, it's fun when you can do it like that and you're not forcing, you're just kind of in that mode. But I had gone that in that mode for for weeks and I didn't realize it, but I started to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And then it was just kind of going slow because it was the way I was doing it, the way I do it. But I, after a while, saw, oh, this is, I'm getting really tight in here. And so I decided to, um, be a, a mischievous yogi and go for a, an unmindful walk. I said, okay, the heck with this. I'm not going to be mindful. So there, that, that was my attitude, right? And I hadn't gone outside for a few weeks, right? Just crawling around. And I, they, I, I got so excited. I was putting on my, my boots and my parka and, my hat, and I was going to go for an unmindful walk. Yeah. And go, shifting from that slow lane to the fast lane, it was like, whoa, I'm in another universe here. And, and I started going my unmindful walk left, right, left, right, hearing, sniffling, thinking, left, right. I couldn't shut it off. It was amazing. It, it just had that momentum in there, and I was not going at the pace that was really matching what I needed, which was some ease and lightness and spaciousness. So there's no one right way. It's a, a continual checking in. At times you will be really here. Maybe you're starting to find that, oh, hey, the breath is my friend, or whatever your primary object. Oh, it's so nice being here in the present moment. Maybe you have glimpses of that. And when you're really here, you're really here. There's nothing you need to fix in that. There's nothing you need to try to get more here because you're already here. So if you're trying harder to be here when you're already here, this is not wise effort. So when you are really here, what to do? Just enjoy being here. And in then at that point, there's no... There's no effort to be more here. And you can simply just relax in the being. But as you've seen in these days, it, it takes effort to just arrive here. You know, just kind of coming back, bringing your attention back. You know, when, I once heard Trump Rinpoche uh, talk about it like manual labor. 
There you are, just bringing your attention back each time. Come on back. If you haven't had that kind of an attitude, it can, it can seem like really heavy work. But if instead you realize, oh, I'm gone. Oh, I'm here because I know that I was gone. Great. I'm here already. I don't have to work hard to be back. I'm already here. Ah, and then just rejoice in the reconnection. So this balance of effort is a, a continual monitoring what is needed without the report card. And for me, the key to my wise effort is the sincerity that I can bring into this moment, which might look very different from one sitting to another or one walking to another because things are changing. And if your sincerity says, hmm, I've been really trying, maybe it's time to just relax and relaxation is the key. I'll talk about that in a few moments. But that's what your sincere effort tells you. Or it might be, if you're really honest with yourself, oh, I need to kind of you know, rev up the commitment and really be here and not, not be so laid back. You know that, that classical uh, example of the the monastic uh, in the Buddhist time who was really trying hard and, and uh, he was having a hard time and he went to the Buddha and he said, this isn't working. And, and the Buddha said, weren't you a musician before you took robes? Oh, yes. He said, what did you play? Oh, I played the lute. What happened if the string was too tight? Oh, you got the wrong pitch, much too high. And what if the string was too loose? Oh, Wrong note, it was too low. He said, just so, not too tight, not too loose, just a balance of effort that is, this is me talking, a kind of wholeheartedness without over-efforting and just showing up as best you can. And that sincerity, if that's your guide, then you can... Just trust if you listen honestly to what is inside and what you need, then that's the best instruction you can have. This is from a yogi uh, who wrote to me at a a retreat at the, uh, he wrote a note finally uh, getting this. And he, he wrote this beautiful note that I've carried around for, or I've kept for many many years, he said, it is indeed a huge relief to realize that I'm not in charge of my thoughts, that they come up completely unbidden. It's also a relief to know that I'm not in charge of my moments of mindfulness. These are indeed just beautiful gifts. I've been laboring under the assumption that by sheer effort of will, I could manufacture awareness 
and that the only reason it wasn't happening was because of laziness, weak brain power, lack of dedication, etc., etc. So the shift in emphasis towards this sincerity of heart, letting the process evolve at its own speed and its own direction has made me incredibly happy. Relaxation is not laziness. It's just letting go of the tightness that gets in the way of you fully connecting with the moment and is actually an aid to mindfulness and an aid to concentration. You can try hard to be concentrated and for a little while it can work, but after after a, a little while, um, the mind starts to get tight in trying to focus and it works against you and you get exhausted. That's not the way. <clears throat> Along with relaxation, I find the key to this balanced effort is interest. Where instead of trying hard to be with the moment, just let yourself be interested and curious. I said earlier that uh, I think in the uh, uh, early on in the retreat, I said, oh, sometimes I just pretend I'm like a baby. Just what does it mean to be, to be breathing here or, or an alien? Those are my two go-to. Hmm, what are these humans go to uh, experience when they're breathing. You, know, I, you won't find that in the suttas, but uh, for me, it just takes me out of James trying to do it right. And I, I have this birthday card. Some of you might have heard me uh, mention this before. My, my favorite birthday card. I've never sent it because I'm a little attached. And... <laughs> On the front is this baby um, who's just pulled a booger out of his nose and that he's staring at transfixed, slightly cross-eyed because he's so, mm, and you open it up and it says, you always were easy to entertain, happy birthday. That's what I aspire to, you know. Let's see. Mm. So this is one aspect of effort that I wanna, I wanted to share with you, and I wanted to share now another aspect, which is um, in terms of the four wise efforts. So the balance of effort, and it's simply the effort to be mindful, and then technically wise effort in the Buddhist teaching is spoken of in four different um, components, two having to do with unwholesome states and two with wholesome states. Unwholesome states, akusala, states of suffering, greed, hatred, delusion, envy. Um, you know those, right? Fear is 
a kind of unwholesome state, although it's not classically categorized. All of those states that are suffering and lead to more suffering when you get caught in it. He says, guard against those states from arising if you can help it. Don't be in uh, in the environment where you're likely to have those triggered. You know, don't be around angry people if you want to maintain calm. You know, of course we can't we can't help that all the time. But the general idea is guard against be in environments that support you instead of ones that trigger you. And when those unwholesome states, akusla, unhealthy states arise, learn how to overcome them, which is a lot of what we're doing here. That's why mindfulness is such a a profound um, quality of mind because when you bring mindfulness to a state of suffering, you see it clearly without identifying with it, without feeding it, and just giving it space to be understood as simply an arising of phenomena in this field of awareness. Loving kindness is another way to overcome unwholesome states. Compassion practice, equanimity practice, generosity practice, so many practices that are given to overcome unwholesome states. And then the other side of the equation, cultivating wholesome states, kusala, states that are, um, that are, bring happiness in the moment and that lead to more happiness as it's cultivated. He says, cultivate these states when they're not here and when they are here to maintain and increase wholesome states is a good thing. And this is what I want to particularly um, mention and offer to you as you go through your practice. And this is the really the, the foundation, the cornerstone of um, the, that joy course that I, that I share. I'm sure many of you have heard. But um, I want to give you a, a real insight into the key to these two sides of the coin, the unwholesome and the wholesome that you might find helpful in your own practice. This is from um, one of my favorite books. Uh, It's a very old classic from the 70s. I don't think it was the 60s. I think it was early 70s. Called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. (laughs) The title might be very intriguing to you as well. Oh, That sounds, it's a thin book too, which really just, you know, 
underscores the whole thing. The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment by a guy named Thaddeus Golis. And this is a passage that I want to share that really, uh, this is before I ever got into Buddha Dharma, um, but it really, mm, how do we say, hits the nail on the head. Mm. The basic function of each being is expanding and contracting. Expanded beings are permeative. Contracted beings are dense and impermeative. We experience expansion as awareness, comprehension, understanding, whatever we wish to call it. When we are completely expanded, we have a feeling of total awareness of being one with all life. At that level, we have no resistance to any vibrations or interactions of other beings. It is timeless bliss with unlimited choice of consciousness, perception, and feeling. When a being is totally contracted, they are a mass particle completely imploded to the degree that they are contracted, a being is unable to be in the same space with others. So contraction is felt as fear, pain, unconsciousness, ignorance, hatred, evil, and a whole host of strange, unpleasant feelings. At an extreme, they have the feeling of being completely insane, of resisting everyone and everything, of being unable to choose the content of their consciousness. Of course, these are just the feelings appropriate to mass vibration levels, and they can get out of them at any time by expanding, by letting go of all resistance to what they think, see, or feel. That's the key. Because all akusala, unwholesome states, are states of contraction. Fear, worry, restlessness, wanting. There are states, there is the contraction of me and feeling separate from everything else. All of the wholesome states Kusala are states of expansion, joy, loving kindness, metta, compassion, peace, ease, generosity, gratitude. You sense that difference of this tightness to this openness and spaciousness. <clears throat> so all one needs to really do if you start to tune into this is seeing, this is all, but it's a big all, is seeing, oh, is there contraction? What do I need 
to create more spaciousness. There was a, uh, a famous Tibetan master that came to Spirit Rock on a Monday night, and um, he said, um, I can sum up all of Dharma practice in two words. Everybody was really interested in getting the secret teachings now. And he said, be spacious. Because in that, you're moving towards an openness and a connection with reality instead of resisting or wanting. And here's the beautiful thing. When we are contracted, we often wish that we can somehow open our heart fully and and just love the moment when we're feeling really tight. And that can make it all the more frustrating. But the secret that I've found is when you're tight, just the slightest movement towards openness is enough to start things changing. Not to open your heart fully, but even to hold your sorrow or your suffering with a bit of tenderness. That's such a beautiful word. I love that word. Isn't it beautiful? Just a little tenderness that softens that tightness and starts feeling in the other directions. You start to feel that openness and then you just appreciate that and you ride that and you delight that you're starting to open. And I... I did this um, in, um, in my own practice when I saw that I had gotten very serious about my practice. This is what I, how I got into writing about joy because I lost my joy for a while. And you might have had that experience where you get really serious after a long honeymoon period, I just felt, oh, I should be, I've got to be mindful and it's not okay to, to let myself enjoy life. And I misconstrued some teachings. I want to share with you some, some teachings that it might be easy to see how we can lose our joy some beautiful teachings that can somehow be misunderstood. Here's one, um, the term Samvega, which is a a very important and profound understanding, but this is the definition of Samvega, that oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness 
in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Wow. (laughs) You read that and you might have the understanding, oh, life is meaningless and let's get out of here as quickly as possible. The operative words there are realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And when you realize, oh, there's another way than getting as much as you can, as fast as you can, and impressing others and getting approval from others, which is what most of humanity is caught in. But you've seen there's a difference and maybe you see it in a deeper and deeper way. Oh, there's another, there's a better way to live. But that's a, that's an easily misunderstood concept. Oh, let's get out of here as fast as we can. And here's another, again, profound teaching that can be misunderstood. I did, or not consciously, but unconsciously, it was in there. And that is the word nibida, which N-I-B-B-A-D-A, which is spoken of as, um, here's one translation, one should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates. Aggregates, Aggregates being these, the five components of what this mind body process is. One should have utter disgust basically for this mind body or another translation revulsion. One should, when a, when a bhikkhu is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, he should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. You know, you know, maybe like me, uh, it, it, it's been a, it's been a practice just to look in the mirror and say, oh, you're okay, you know. <laughs> but then, oh, one should have utter disgust or revulsion for that. Whoa. But that's because that word nibida can have a lot of different translations. And when you read it in that Victorian kind of depiction, that can lead to, again, this feeling that, oh, it's not okay to appreciate, or like Sumedho says, rejoice in the, be- in the beauty of things. Um, but a better translation, this is from Andy Olinsky, says it's really a turning away from, which is, a better translation, a disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. So you're not enchanted by them. You're not under the spell. And when you've broken the spell of 
the package, either this one or others, uh, there's a tremendous freedom and liberation that comes from that. So anyway, I, um, I got into this kind of negative idea of what these teachings were about. And I wasn't alone. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't read this yet. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> and that's, those are meditations that you do. Uh, this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the, the selfless nature of reality. Mm -hmm. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. So, <clears throat> when I, after I lost my joy, I went back to the teachings and I said, well, what is the Buddha saying about this? This, what is wise effort? Is it to just turn your back on everything good? No. And I found some beautiful teachings that have been very powerful for me in my own practice. The Buddha was called the happy one. He wasn't called the suffering one, but with, you know, the, the Four Noble Truths, which you heard last night, which are liberating when you tr truly take them in and, and practice them deeply. There is suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's the end of suffering, and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. That can have you think that this is mostly about suffering and getting rid of suffering. When the Buddha was called the happy one, he wasn't called the suffering one. The Dalai Lama begins his, his beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. That might seem like a, a selfish kind of a, 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 a project or a, a vision, but it's not because if you discover true happiness inside, true well-being inside, then you're not blocking it 
with all of this mind stuff that gets in the way that says, am I enough or not enough? And then your beautiful qualities shine through and everybody gets the benefit of it. This is the Buddha, this is the Thomas Byram translation of the Dhammapada, one verse from the Dhammapada, where he says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So this wise effort of cultivating the wholesome and maintaining and increasing it when it's here, that's the one that doesn't get a whole lot of airplay. Yeah, we're cultivating these wholesome states, but he says to maintain and increase the wholesome when they arise. Now your mind might say, well, hold on a moment. If I want to increase it, isn't that getting caught up in more attachment? It can be. If you say, oh, this feels so good. Bring it on. I want it more. That openness of the wholesome state has just turned into akusala as there's grasping. So not to grasp onto the wholesome state, but to really let yourself be present for it. And when you're present for it and delighting in it, delighting in calm without attachment, there's a difference between appreciation and attachment. When you're present for it, mindfulness amplifies the wholesome state. And there's a feeling of uplift, of gladness that accompanies that wholesome state. In fact, just before I go on, think of something right now that brings you joy. Or maybe you had an experience of it today. Or something in your life. What brings you joy? And recall the last time you experienced it. And as you recall it, Notice how it feels inside. How would you describe the feeling besides feeling good? What's the feeling of the gladness of the wholesome? Okay, you can open your eyes. Maybe just take a few comments, one word. What was it like for you? Anybody want to say Oh, you describe it? You have to yell out loud. Say again. Warm. Yeah. Someone I'm not there's not one answer I'm looking for. Inner smile. Mm-hmm. What else? Buoyant. Yeah. One more. Serene. There's an actual feeling that comes 
with that moment of well-being. And the Buddha says, notice that feeling. And he gives the example in one discourse as um, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, think to yourself, I'm being generous now. He says, that's a good thing. Not, hey, check it out. I wonder, I hope everyone sees how generous I am. But he says, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. And he calls that feeling the gladness connected with the wholesome. And in this discourse, he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma. It gladdens the heart. And he says, that's a good thing. So to notice that gladness, notice the wholesome, when you happen to be in that moment, there you are, oh, feeling the sun. You've come in from the, uh, out from the, from the cold and, ah, the sun on my face. Or um, seeing, seeing a lizard around here. Oh, look at that. Or whatever it is, don't miss it. Ah, this is a moment where my heart is uplifted. And the more you start noticing it, the more you start priming the mind to notice it. Because we, we have this phenomenon called a confirmation bias. And you will find what you look for. And if you're looking for how everybody around is to be suspicious of, then you'll miss all the beautiful the doors opening your way or the smiles coming if when the masks are off, whatever. But if you start to be on the lookout for the good inside and outside, the more you look for it, the more you will find it. And modern neuroscience uh, says that this is so, that when you pay attention to a moment of well-being and not just know, oh, feeling good now, but give more attention, mindful attention and explore, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good in your body as well as in your head. That deepens the neural pathways. Rick Hansen, probably many of you are familiar with Rick Hansen. He's a great neuroscientist and a neuroscience expert and a, a member of our community was on the board for many years. And um, he has this, this formula. He has, uh, he wrote Buddha's brain and hardwiring happiness. And he says, if you're in the middle of a wholesome state, if you can be with it for 15 seconds and notice, Oh, this is a moment of well-being right now. And his formula is, if you can do that six times in a day, that's 90 seconds of well-being, if you can stand it. And you have, what else do you have to do here today? <laughs> you can have a whole lot more than that. 
He says that you do that six times in a day over a two week period, you're going to probably notice a shift in your well-being. One, because you're deepening the neural pathways and two, because you're starting to be on the lookout for the good. So as part of your practice, this wise effort of being of cultivating the wholesome and being with the wholesome as a practice when it's here, just like the Buddha says in the Satipatthana Sutta, one knows the concentrated mind is the concentrated mind. One knows the exalted mind as the exalted mind. Ah, not grasp onto it, but to know it. Then you will be deepening your practice of wise effort. <clears throat> and when you start to do that more and more, you discover the secret of mindfulness is not letting all of these thoughts and old habits and patterns get in the way of seeing who you really are. Because who you are is the Buddha inside. That's why the Buddha taught because he saw that there were many people who could experience the, the happiness and well-being that he experienced. That's your true nature. And let me see if I can. I have a picture I want to show you. This is Chloe Thomas. Not yet nine months after conception because she was born premature. That's who you are. You remember? Might think that was a long time ago, but that's who you are. If you're, you were fed and given a little bit of, of, of kindness and diapered, you know, babies squeal with delight. Wow. And the same thing for adults. If there's not stress and not, um, not physical or emotional stress, you put an adult in an MRI machine and they are, they exhibit in their brain, conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's your true nature. Anything that gets in the way is just the mind stuff. So to really let yourself take in the good and be present for it. And part of that also is to um, soften your heart when it's not so good. And of course we need, we can't just be open and loving all the time when things are hard. That's when you bring a tenderness. That's when you bring compassion. That's when you bring metta. That's when you bring a kind awareness to it. And when you are attentive to that moment of well-being, you actually amplify it. And when you are in the middle of the difficult stuff and you see it, as Pema Chodron says, take delight in the awareness that sees the dukkha. 
Instead of, oh, there's a whole lot of dukkha now. It's, ah, I see it. I'm aware. And take delight that there's an awareness that's not completely caught in it and lost in it, but that is open to seeing with kind and wise eyes. So to uh, just to end the, the talk, I, I want to just offer a, a little uh, last exercise to show you how when you have a wholesome state and then you apply mindfulness to it, uh, that uh, it, it deepens it. And this is the wholesome state of gratitude. As the, the Buddha says in the Mangala Sutta, he says, to be content and grateful, this is a blessing supreme. So just close with uh, maybe an invitation to a wholesome state. Just close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind some blessing in your life. Maybe you had one come to mind today. Someone or something that you're grateful for or grateful to. And call up an image of either that person or that life circumstance. And as you have an image, give a simple, silent thank you right from your heart. Oh, thank you. And then just relax in that feeling of gratitude. Notice how it feels in your body. Thank you. Just don't miss it. Enjoy it. Take another deep breath. Bring another blessing to mind. You probably have so many. Call up an image. So you can really connect with that person or that situation. Again, a simple thank you right from your heart. Thank you. Thank you for being in my life. And then just enjoy it mindfully. landscape of gratitude. What does it feel like in there? Oh, thank you. One more. Take a nice deep breath. like to do things in threes in Buddhism. And one last blessing. Call up an image. A simple thank you from your heart. Thank you. Let yourself feel it. And then just relax in it. Enjoy it. Maintaining 
that wholesome state by just being present for it. An equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And I'll just be quiet for these last moments as we end the talk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.